Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality they make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. Last week we released our 50th Wartime Diary. This week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating Wartime Diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, So if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. So, like, when when did we actually become friends, the four of us? Wow. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) i I don't even know well i think it centered around summer camp you know we were all in summer camp together from i think uh we were like fifth grade 95 fourth grade fourth grade but even before that we went on those lame hikes with no right right 95 is seventh grade and that's like the sleepover camp If you've been following Israel's story from the beginning, you might know that our show started off as this kind of side hobby of four really close childhood friends. Roy Gilron, Shai Satran, Yochai Meital, and me. A lot's happened since then, and we've grown into a large team, but at its core, one of the most wonderful things about this whole project, at least for me, is that I get to hang out with my best friends and laugh and argue and travel. And... Then I get to call that work. Yeah, I know how cliche that sounds, but it's true. Tough guys, let's do a little high, maybe. 
Rechaim. Two. Friendship. Friendship. Besties. Rechaim. Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and from PRX, this is Israel Story. Israel Story is produced together with Tablet Magazine. And today on our show, Besties. We have three stories for you of three different pairs of best friends. Our first story today is a tale of friendship between two women who come from the most prominent dynasties in the region. Families that, for decades, were more often than not on opposite sides of wars, of military operations, of violence. Act 1, R&R. So, Ruth, I'll start with you. What, what do you love about Ramonda? <laughs> Everything. I, I, I even love her when she's angry and she says things that I, I tell her that this is not right. But I don't care because I don't care what she thinks. I, I really, I, I love her from the moment I really met her. That's Ruth. She'll turn 99 next month. And she's talking about her best friend, Ramonda Tawil. I mean, it, it's, not, uh, it's not... People think that when I love someone or I like someone, it's for some reason. Or there's a reason. There isn't a reason. Ramonda is more than 20 years younger than Ruth. She was born in Acre to an affluent Palestinian Christian family, the Chawas. Do you remember the first moment you saw it? Yes, I saw that that lady, beautiful blonde lady, arriving to the to the hospital with the, her car was full. I think the car, your car was full of. Uh, and the, the dolls. The year was 1970, and the hospital where Ruth arrived, dolls in hand, was in the Palestinian city of Nablus in the West Bank. Now, that was unusual to say the least. Just three years earlier, Israel had won the Six Day War. During the war, Israel had conquered the Golan Heights, the Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem. There was total euphoria in the country, almost messianic euphoria. Jews returned to Jerusalem's old city, prayed at the Kotel, the Wailing Wall. It was here that Israeli troops acted more like tourists than fighting men, obviously in awe of their surroundings. And the territory of the tiny Zionist state was practically tripled overnight. Military generals were lauded as rock stars. And above it all stood a single man, the architect of that crushing victory. The Wailing Wall, where Israeli Defense Minister General Moshe Dayan praised pledging never to give up the old city. The one-eyed minister of defense, Moshe Dayan, also known as Ruth's husband. And here she was, just three years later, at the height of a period of IDF raids against the Palestinian Liberation Organization and its bearded leader, Yasser Arafat, showing up in a Palestinian hospital, bringing dolls to the same people her husband was fighting. I mean, it's crazy. People are dying. And she's bringing dolls. Look, Ruth, when she came to visit us the first time in Nablus, she came as a, a, a humanitarian to help the children who were, uh, you know, wounded, you know, with broken legs, broken 
arms, whatever, wounded from the wars. She was a young woman at that time, beautiful woman. And this is, this is Mrs. Diane. And for us, I mean, she, she was a shock. What is Diane? What kind of Diane? She said, yes, Mr. Moshe Diane. And she said, I am coming to help, you know, the Palestinian children, bringing toys, medicine. What can I help? I was outbursting, shouting, God, not that we don't need your help. Look, the men, the children, the hospital, the corpses. What, look what is going on. And this is your husband. We told her, stop the war, stop the war, stop the war. Go until the end, stop the war, stop the killing. And she said, you know, she asked, what do you need? Medicine, what do you need medical? What do you need equipment? What do you need? He said, we have no electricity. People are dying in, in, in the hospital. We have nothing. She, she, was, she had tears in her eyes. So this was our first time I met with Diane. That meeting 46 years ago was just the beginning of their unlikely friendship. Over the years, they would meet regularly, mainly in Ramonda's Nablus and Ramallah living rooms, where she liked to play the role of hostess in a sort of local version of a grand French literary salon. They would talk politics, debate, argue, all over hot sweet tea, or, in Ruth's case, her favorite single malt whiskey. Their bond changed them both, dramatically. For Ruth, it pushed her to make a very big decision. I divorced Moshe because of the Palestinian women. And that's a fact. For Ramonda, the friendship was even dangerous. And following many threats, she ultimately had to leave the West Bank. People have been killed for a kind of this friendship. My life was threatened all my life. So did you ever think that being friends with Ruth could get you killed? Of course. Of course. Yeah. What do you think, I mean? Just, just say with Diane? It's easy? Well, the difficult thing was uh, it wasn't always very popular, and it still isn't, for a Palestinian, especially Palestinian nationalist, to have an intimate friendship with an Israeli. And in this case, the Israeli was the wife of, of the great general Moshe Diane. That's Anthony David, a writer whose book about the two ladies, An Improbable Friendship, just came out this fall. We caught him in New Orleans, in the midst of a book tour. Ruth is considered the matriarch of the country. She's the Rose Kennedy. She's not only uh, a woman in her own right who has accomplished a great deal, but of course she was the wife of Moshe Dayan, and the sister of the former First Lady of Israel. And she also has children who are among the most prominent people in the country, including Asi Dayan, who is the who is the Brando of Israel. The handsome, dashing, brilliant filmmaker, writer, director, producer. His sister uh, is Yael, who was a member of parliament and has for many years been on the forefront of, of civil rights. So Ruth is the, is the head of this clan that has, has decisively influenced Israel's history from the very beginning. So Ruth Dayan's name is not anybody. 
Ruth Dayan name, she, even if she's divorced, whatever she is, he is the conqueror of all the, the Arab countries. Sinai, Jerusalem, uh, West Bank, uh, uh, Golan, whatever it is. He's enemy. But Ruth Dayan is not like this. Ruth Dayan is not Dayan. But she carries a very heavy name. Ruth? I don't know. Ramonda also came from local aristocracy, just from the Palestinian side. The Hawa family has been in the country in Israel-Palestine for 500 years or more. Extremely wealthy family, Christian family that owned much of the Galilee, including a castle and villas in, in Acre and Haifa. When she was a little girl at the age of eight in 1948, her family lost all of its property. So she carried that with her. In the 70s and 80s, she was this beautiful Jane Fonda of the country who was defying the occupation. And as if all that pedigree wasn't enough, Ramonda became very closely connected to the top Palestinian leadership. Of Ramonda's four children, Suha's one, and as she, in 1991, she was moving between Paris and, and Tunis when she met Yasser Arafat, the chairman of the PLO, and they got married in a secret ceremony. That's right. Moshe Dayan's former wife and the mother-in-law of his arch-enemy, Yasser Arafat, are besties. Yeah, they're best friends, and they have been for decades. Since Ramonda is no longer living in the region, she's living in Malta and other places in Dubai, they speak over the phone quite often. They recently met in Malta, and... They, they maintain a very close friendship. And they share most, most of the values they share, even though they, they quarrel occasionally. How do you become friends with, the, with your enemy, basically? No, we fight. We fight. And we don't speak a lot of, for months sometimes. And as if on cue, they got right into it. This time about the number of Israeli women at some demonstration in Nablus. Don't think that you, if a woman from 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 Tel Aviv no. went went to see no, to speak no. in Nablus, that we Nablus Nablus women. women. What are you talking? What is hundred women? You will demonstrate hundred women in Nablus? Never. Yes, yes, Never. yes. I I, I I I challenge you. I know. But this I, is Nablus. You don't know Nablus. It can't be. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I but mean, we're, we're, uh, you understand me. I mean, we, I am not uh, saying that it's not true what you said, but I said maybe it is with a small group. It's always a small group. Yes, but maybe. No, but I. But not in that's the. That's why the, I say I'm not political. I'm not like you. When I, when I scream and get my anger at her, she is better than anybody in the world. She does not react with, uh, with grudge. She never reacts with grudge. When I asked why there aren't more Ruths and Ramondas, both ladies sighed. They've been around a long time, the two of them. They've seen hope, and they've seen despair. They remember different times when Jews and Muslims and Christians could get along. Now, they're worried. Today, it's not like that. I don't think in Tel Aviv there's anyone who speaks to an Arab. Today, I'm, I don't believe in anything. You see 
demonstrations of 20,000 were against the occupation. What happened? Nothing. Nothing moved. Nothing moves today. And so I feel, I can't feel what she feels, but I am so angry that we haven't learned in 60 years to be like human beings. I've learned a lot from Ramonda about her life and her people, and the same I think uh, she did learned about me. If we had Diane, Mrs. Diane, governing the country, we would have peace since a long time. She's everywhere. She's helping everywhere. She goes to to the, to the galleries. She goes to the villages. She goes to the camps. She's everywhere. Who Diane? The sweetest, the kindest, the most human. We recorded this story in Malta, where Ramonda has been living for the last few years. 98-year-old Ruth came to visit her this summer. They were sitting on the couch, and when they weren't wagging fingers at each other, they were holding hands. As difficult as it is, History, power dynamics, fear, wars, intifadas, all weighing on this friendship. There's something very simple about it. They're just two women who happen to love each other. Anthony David's truly wonderful book about Ruth and Ramonda is called An Improbable Friendship, The Remarkable Lives of Israeli Ruth Dayan and Palestinian Ramonda Tawil and their 40-year peace mission. You can find it on Amazon, where it's the number one bestseller in the political biographies category. In 1999, the Telnof military base near Rehovot was a buzz. It was the 25th anniversary celebration of Sheshesh Teisha, 669, the Israeli Air Force's elite airborne search and rescue unit. There were plates full of hummus and eggplant salad, there were bowls of fresh fruit, some music, congratulatory speeches, and mainly just a lot of all-around merriment. It was a reunion of sorts for generations of soldiers who had served in the unit. All the past commanders were there, a few army top brass, helicopter pilots, extraction specialists. And then, mixed in with all these special forces, was an odd pair. Ethan Shishinsky and Israel Uman. They looked more like sleepy university professors than heroic Air Force rescuers. And they looked that way because that's exactly what they are. One's a mathematician the other an economist. What were these professors doing there, milling around all the Air Force types? Well, that's in our next story. A story which is about rationality. About rational men. Or at least about men who are supposed to be that way. Act 2, The Center for Rationality. Here's Shai Satran. University professors aren't, for the most part, especially well-known public figures in Israel. These two, though, they're household names. 
Ethan Shishinsky, the economist in the duo, recently headed two huge public committees on the taxation of Israel's natural resources. He's become a symbol of sorts, a defender of the everyman, fighting off gas and oil tycoons. His friend, Robert Israel Uman, well, he won the Nobel Prize. It is a great honor to introduce the prize winner in economic sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel, Professor Robert Aumann. We met at Israel's office at the Center for Rationality at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Now, in many ways, these two men are kind of opposites. Israel was born in Germany and grew up in New York City. Eitan, on the other hand, was born on a kibbutz. They differ politically, too. Israel's a hawk, Eitan a dove. They don't seem to fit together when you look at them, either. Eitan is clean-shaven and secular, whereas Israel, with his long white beard, looks a bit like a Jewish sage in a children's picture book. Israel's 85 years old. Eitan is 78. Getting to 79 in a few months. 79? Uh, Do you remember the first time that you met? Like uh, two sweethearts. We don't remember the sort of the first kiss or something. No. That's Eitan Shishinsky. But where I can guess it was probably Stanford first, 65, 66, 67. I wasn't in Stanford in the, in the late 60s. It was, uh, no, when, okay, uh, when um, this, uh, I first came to Stanford in, in 71, I think. And correcting him, that's Israel Oman. So uh, I think it was here, actually. Maybe. I think it was Maybe here. here. I think Maybe it here. was here in Jerusalem. And, uh, yeah, the late 60s, something late like 60s, that. Yeah, okay, 60s. yeah. While they couldn't recall their first meeting, they do remember a defining moment early on in their relationship. Ethan was giving a talk in the economics department in Jerusalem and getting some pushback from colleagues. The subject was far from Israel's field, but he spoke up anyway. So he immediately understood and explained to everybody else. He didn't know anything about it, but he explained it perfectly. I still don't know anything about economics. <laughs> okay. There are Nobel Prizes in economics. Economics. Ever since, Eitan and Israel have been close, even very close. Their families vacation together, they have Friday night dinners together, usually at the Omans, because the Shashinsky home isn't kosher. In the rarer cases that he comes to us, we have a whole set of uh, dishes for the Omans. We have to invite you once again. As we talked, Eitan and Israel were sitting side by side. They have this manner with each other that's just completely endearing. Israel puts his hand on Eitan's arm. They smile unconsciously almost when listening to the other tell stories, all of which it is obvious they have heard a million times before. Sometimes they mouth each other's punchlines inaudibly. It didn't take long before the conversation shifted to their favorite pastime. We're hiking together. Hiking. That's, that's a cementing that has been going on for years here and in California. But not only in California, also in Arizona, you know. Oh, yes, in the, Arizona. Oh, you went there. Yeah. Arizona, New Mexico, um, and, and, and many other hikes on, on, in the Sierra Mountains. In the Sierra Mountains in let me the tell a story about South that. We, we were okay. together in, in the uh, Kings Canyon National Park, right. okay? And uh, just, just Eitan and me. We were, uh, several days we were going, right? We were going in there for several days with horses and so What on. followed was this so, staggering uh, array so of outdoor adventures. <laughs> There was the one with the bear who snatched Ethan's backpack. So the bear sees Ethan running after him, and he starts running, okay? 
Now, uh, Eitan runs faster than the bear, yes. And the bear sees this, and he drops the pack, and he runs off. I don't blame the bear, because if, if, if Eitan would have been running after me, I would have dropped the pack also. So uh, you can't see Eitan over here, but he does look a little like a bear himself, yes. And the time on Tisha B'Av, when Israel decided to hike, totally ignoring the fast. You can walk in the mountains while you're mourning. So we walked uh, 10-15 miles on Tisha B'Av. It vomited and, and uh, it didn't turn out well. Dehydrated, de- de- Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everything. Yeah. So we heard a bunch of these stories, and well. Sounds like you have a tendency of getting into trouble together. Uh, I don't know. We didn't get into any real... Uh, yeah, there was a... Yeah, okay, the ta- I'll tell Snapping, you that time. about snapping, about yeah. what we do we in, in the Judean Desert. You heard nothing from nothing yet. In the Judean Desert, uh, there are um, canyons, okay? And the particular canyon that we were in is called the, the Chatzatzon Canyon, Vadi Chatzatzon. So they are dry waterfalls, which are basically cliffs. So you go down these, these canyons and you have to rope down over the waterfall. They reached one such cliff, which was over 100 meters high. Their longest rope, 80 meters long. So they took a detour along a ledge. You walk along that ledge until you get to a side canyon, which is steep, but you don't have to rope it down. It's manageable. Eitan was walking ahead. Israel was right behind him. And Eitan, at some point, he decides to leave the ledge and climb down the steep, almost vertical canyon wall into the side canyon, okay? And I shout to him, Eitan, not there, not there, okay? And he either doesn't hear me or he makes believe that he doesn't hear me. I don't remember whether I heard it or not. I'm probably he's right. I was stubborn or something, and I, I just continued. And he hasn't gone more than a meter before he falls, okay? He falls into the side canyon. And he loses consciousness. Israel rushed to Ethan's side. What's going through your head? I hope he lives, yeah, okay. That's what's going through my head, all right? Uh, and uh, after uh, some time, maybe an hour and a half, two hours, a helicopter appears hovering above. The helicopter took them directly to the hospital. I just remember... I couldn't move my lower part of the body. He was in there about a month. You know, he had a lot of broken stuff, yes. Fortunately, his head was not broken. Isal and Nathan were rescued by Sheshashtesha, 669, the Air Force's rescue unit. Now, usually, when they rescue civilian hikers, it's young, reckless kids doing dumb stuff and not, you know, Nobel laureates. 
But from the way Eitan and Israel were talking about the saga, it became clear that this wasn't even a one-time thing. This happened more than once? Yes. Yeah. Yes. We were pulled by helicopters a number of times. This is just, just one of those times. There was another time, was yeah. Another one, time. One, one other time. To Eitan it happened three times, three times. yeah. There was but another time with him. I, to me it happened twice. In the same, in the same canyon, okay? Right. So, yeah. Oman and Shishinsky are the only couple to be rescued by 669. Twice. Hence the invitation as the guests of honor, I guess, to the unit's 25th anniversary. And I should, I should add that we didn't give up at this point. Yeah, having tried the Chatzatzon twice and not succeeded, yes, we tried a third time. That time they made it all the way through. And still, I couldn't help wondering whether we shouldn't, maybe, expect more prudence from the men who, in a sense, define the very concept of rational behavior. You think we should not have gone to do this kind of thing? What do you think? That we, we should allow the canyon to, right. to uh, uh, beat us? There's something I learned from you. In, in, uh, first of all, this Chatzatzon business, it's a principle. It's a principle that I learned from you. You failed once, you failed twos. It's a system, it's the, it's the method, perseverance. You know, you stay, you stay with the goal. Absolutely, yes. Yes. What does rationality mean? You know what rationality means? You do the best you can to achieve your goals given your information, okay? Now, our goal was to do the Chatzatzon Canyon from beginning to end. That was our goal. So you don't uh, succeed the first time, and you don't succeed the second time. You try again. And we succeeded the third time, no problem. Shai Satran. Our last story is about a small club. A club of two. And not one you'd really like to join. Dana Harmon brings us this next piece. Act 3, Girls' Night In. It's Thursday night, and I'm up in Einat Cohen's apartment in Tel Aviv. The Doors, Hello, I Love You, is playing on an old record player. Einat, messy blonde hair, vivacious, mothering, she's wearing her favorite stripy sweater, is making sweet potato soup in her open space kitchen. Her friend, pretty Sharon Gilad, who looks a little bit like an airline stewardess, and actually she used to be one, has come over with a warm loaf of bread from the bakery around the corner. They open a bottle of Red Yarden wine, and they talk, as they often do, about boys. I'm not dating so much. Not is dating, but I'm picky. Picky, picky, stay at home. <laughs> Enad and Sharon both in their mid-40s, grew up together in the upscale suburban city of Ramata Sharon. Although actually, to say they grew up together would be a bit misleading. And to say that they were always friends would also be wrong. If anything, they were most definitely not friends, and it's only because of some twists of fate, cruel fate, that they refound each other a few years ago and reconnected. 
They first met, according to Einat, when they were tots in a Ramata Sharon ballet class. I think we study ballet together. No. Yeah. Ah, maybe <laughs> when we were yeah. four, five. Not five, uh, ten, eleven, twelve. The next time they crossed paths was when Sharon was in junior high, and Einat, a year older, had just started high school, and also, important, had just started dating Nir, the coolest boy in the class. For four years, Einat and Nir were an item. It was high school love, but it was big love. They did everything together, and everyone knew they were a couple. After high school, Nir went off to the Air Force to train as a pilot, and Einat, who'd always been active in her youth movement, headed out to the Nachal, a program that combines regular military service with agricultural or community work. She was part of a small group that was sent to Kibbutz El Rom, which everyone jokingly calls the highest kibbutz in the world because it's in the northern Golan Heights, close to the Syrian border. That's where she met Alon. He was from the Herzliya branch of her youth movement, and now, in the same kibbutz, they found themselves getting closer. Meanwhile, when Sharon's turn to go into the military came around, she was sent to the Air Force, where she met up with her old crush, Nir, who was now conveniently single. They fell in love. When you and Nir got together, um, did you talk about Enat? He said that he was his uh, mythologist uh, girlfriend. The one that he remembers and loved so much, and she really hurt his heart. Enat, mm-hmm. you broke his heart? I didn't know that I broke his heart. Yeah. Alon, says Enat, was just a friend at first. When he left the kibbutz for active duty in Gaza, he would write her long letters. He would describe what he was up to and what was going on in his heart, too. She sent him care packages filled with candy. He had a sweet tooth and updated him on the kibbutz gossip. In time, after the army, after their separate trips meandering around Asia, as so many post-army Israelis do, and back in Tel Aviv as students, that friendship morphed into love. And in 1997, 10 years after they met, Alon proposed to Einat, not with the ring, but with a swatch watch. We got married, and uh, we were very best friends still, and I was very in love with him. A year earlier, Sharon and Nir, the Air Force lovebirds, had gotten married too. So at this point, Nir and Sharon, and Einat and Alon, were two happy couples, all living in Tel Aviv. Once, early days, the two couples tried to get together. But it wasn't all that. I remember that we went to your house once in Tel Aviv. You remember something like that? It was quite um, awkward. And then we decided that we don't have to be in touch. So they left it. And time went on. Inad and Alon had two sons, Itamar and Eli, who was named for the coffee brand. And Sharon and Nir had three kids, Maya, Guy, and Nomi. Enat stopped having the occasional coffee meet-up with her ex, Nir, and Sharon stopped thinking about her husband's mythological girlfriend, and everyone basically moved on, as people do. So it's not that surprising, actually, that Sharon and Nir didn't know that Enat and Alon's lives had taken a bad turn. Here's Enat. He went karting, and he came back uh, dizzy. He didn't move away for a couple of days, and he started to make a test why they said maybe it's vertigo. And uh, we went in the hospital, they sent us back, we, and it didn't stop. And they sent us to MRI, and then we discovered that he had something in uh, his brain. And we need to, he need to go 
surgery. For a while, they thought they could beat the cancer. Alon had operations. He did radiation. He traveled all the way to the U.S. for alternative therapies, and he went in and out of hospitals, sometimes feeling well enough to bike himself over to the emergency room and then bike home when he was released. We keep going like it it's doesn't there. I mean, we did what we have to do, the surgery, the treatment, but we continue like it's something that we just have to pass, and it will be okay after that. So how old was Alon when he found out he wasn't? Well... 35. And how old was he when he died? 42. A month before Alon died, when he was already so sick he couldn't take a shower on his own or even get out of bed without help, Inat stepped out to take their older son to a birthday party. She didn't like leaving Alon. She always kept her phone close. But the phone call she got that afternoon was a blow she had not seen coming. It was not about Alon at all. It was about her ex, Nir. Nir woke up in the morning. He had a, a, a kind of a bicycle trip with his, uh, his friends from the squadron. That's Sharon speaking. He said goodbye and didn't come back. <laughs> he had um, don't live. His heart stopped beating just, you know. Um, just like that? Just like that. How old is he? 43. <laughs> yeah. When Ainat at that birthday party heard the news, she began to cry, and she just could not stop. I just take my boy and say that we, can, we have to go, and I really didn't know what to do. And the funeral was on Sunday, and I, I thought that I should come, but I could not. It was, um, it was too much for Inat felt empty. She felt defeated. That somehow all this death was maybe her destiny. If she had stayed with Nir, she would have been a widow. Instead, she had left Nir and married Alon, and now he was dying too, and she was about to be a widow anyway. Did you t- tell Alon? Of course. He saw me cry for like one week, I think. He was, I think he was, uh, didn't like it. <laughs> So much that I'm crying not for him, for someone else. Who were you crying for, though, really? I don't know. I think I, it was, I was crying for everything. Um, about me, about him, about Sharon, about the kids. When Alon died, I, I think I was shocked. I'm not crying, just shocked. It was like a dream, very bad dream. I need to do, you need to do some stuff to go to funeral, to meet people. I didn't know. I don't remember nothing from the funeral, what I talk, what I did, what I wear, what I, nothing. It was like a, something you have to do, but you don't, it's not you, it's not your life. Sharon had a similar experience going through those early days of grieving. I felt like I was the, uh, the fly in, on the wall. I felt li- like I'm in a movie of my own, I guess. I don't know. A few months after their respective husbands died, Einad and Sharon each separately ventured out for the first time to try and do something fun for their kids. They both chose to go to the same Hanukkah musical show, and Einat spotted Sharon in the crowd. And then we stood before we got into the, the hall, 
And then she came to me and she said, Sharon, it's me, Einat. You remember me? <laughs> and I didn't recognize her. So I said, uh, yeah. Hi, how are you? I heard, and then I told you, I heard about your husband, and, and she said, you know, we should get together sometime. It's not like Einat wanted to be friends with Sharon, really, she says, or thought they should be. It's more she felt she needed to explain herself, why she hadn't come to Nir's funeral or the shiva or reached out at all. She wanted to explain somehow that, busy with her own grief, she'd had no space left for anyone else's. Sharon, on her part, wasn't that sure she felt like getting together with Einat at all. But it was really hard to say no, she says. So they set a date to meet for coffee. I was very afraid. I, I remember that I was very, very tense from the meeting. I mean, we met in Ramata Sharon, you remember? I called my friend and I told him, you know who I'm going to meet? I'm going to meet Einat. How surreal is that? And what am I going to talk to her? I don't know. I, don't, I have nothing to say to her. The one thing that makes me happy that I'm sure that Nir is laughing. Like, really, I mean, he's, he's laughing so much. I died and you became friends. It was worth it. At first, their friendship was all about what they call widow stuff. We had a lot of things that we can discuss that you cannot discuss some other people, like what you're doing with this stuff and what you're doing with, the, I don't know, with these shoes, with these shirts, with these uh, books, with these letters. We are thinking about the same thought. But over time, that friendship moved on and took on a different pace. I mean, I think we're, we're now talking about the future, maybe, not, uh, not the past. We're talking about now, if it's about uh, how to meet boys and uh, when you meet them, what boys you want to meet, what men you want to meet, how to fall in love again, maybe. Both Einad and Sharon say that when they lost their husbands, they also lost their best friends. Obviously, they were very sad, but they were also disoriented. The person they had each told all their secrets to and trusted the most was suddenly gone. He was, he was my best friend. Most of the stuff that I used to talk to him, I don't talk to anybody. There was no replacement? Mm, no. At one point, only half-joking, the woman thought to form a little widow's club. You remember that we decided to do once the widow evening? Because, you know, another widow, and Mm -hmm. I have another one, and now I have another two. (laughs) We continue, we'll have another three. Whose husbands died how? Mine, Mine died, they died in the army. Oh. Yeah. No, but you have the other one also... From heart attack in the office. Yeah, but she she has a partner, so she's not widow anymore. (laughs) She's not. Yeah, she's not in the market. The idea never went anywhere. So we had like a our club, (laughs) very small club. (laughs) Einat and Sharon have not filled the gaping hole each of them was left with in her life, but still they've become important to each other. There is something special there. We share lots of 
stuff that happens to us. I don't know how to say it. It's like something that... Uh, like a drug. Yeah, you're like a drug. Sharon's your drug. Yeah, heroin chic. <laughs> and that's where I leave them. <laughs> Just two girlfriends from Ramata Sharon hanging out with their sweet potato soup, red wine, and Steely Dan, which has replaced the doors now. They're giggling, and they're chatting about whatever, and they're listening to the rain, which has just started falling outside. And they're feeling okay. Better somehow for having each other. Donna Harmon is a journalist for Haaretz. And that's our episode, Besties. Go share it with your best friend. And if either of you are new to the show, you can catch up on all our previous episodes. Just search for Israel Story on iTunes, Stitcher, or any of the other main podcast platforms. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. Now, in case you haven't heard, we're looking for a sponsor. So if you want to support our show and reach a dedicated and rapidly growing audience, email us at sponsor at prx.org. Before we go, I want to get a really great new podcast on your radar. It's called The Kibitz Podcast, and it's hosted by the hilarious and soulful Dan Crane. Their second episode just came out, and if you check it out, and you really should, you'll hear many great pieces. And also this. So is there anything you would change if you could go back and, and do your bar mitzvah all over again? What, what would you change? I think I would try to maybe seize the opportunity and kiss Ganit Grey. Oh. <laughs> I feel that you have a certain, like, you know, aura on your bar mitzvah day that maybe allows you to kiss pretty girls. <laughs> <laughs> Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Go to tabletmag.com slash Israel Story to hear all our previous episodes. And thanks to Tammy Goldenberg for help with mixing today's show. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Shai Satran, Roy Gilron, Maya Kosover, and Shoshi Shmulevitz. Amir Faktor, Itai Hyman, Rachel Fisher, and Sophie Shore are incredible production interns. This is actually Sophie's last episode with us, but don't worry. You'll hopefully hear her later on in the season. Julie Subrin's our executive producer. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back in two weeks with a new Israel Story episode. Till then, yalla bye.